Welcome to Civil Discourse. This podcast will use government documents to illuminate the workings of the American government and offer context around the effects of government agencies in your everyday life. And now your hosts, Nia Rogers, public affairs librarian, and Dr. John Augenbaugh, political science professor. Okay, so we're going to continue in the second part of our um, of our civil discourse. Oh, sorry, moving things around here, making noise, making a racket, um, because I have some follow up questions about this eviction thing. So the first thing, first thing I'd like to follow up on is something um, that you said, uh, Dr. Howell, which was that. Oh, no, wait, I'm sorry. It, it might have been you, Dr. Teresa. I'm not sure now. Um, somebody was talking about the engagement in the neighborhood. And that's one of the things that's mentioned in the book is there was a woman who was very engaged in her previous neighborhood. But when she was evicted, she was thrown into a neighborhood where she didn't connect with the neighbors. A lot of them were there either short term or or not as involved in the neighborhood. And so it was very hard for her to feel emotional attachment. Is that a is that a common um, experience with eviction is that as you move around from place to place, you become less and less connected with the neighborhoods that you're living in or the people that you're living around? I think that's a really good question. And I, I think the book does a good job of kind of painting that picture of what instability means in a lot of different dimensions of life. Um, I think it's absolutely the case uh, that you're going to lose a lot uh, from eviction and the instability it produces. So uh, moving multiple times, having to find housing very quickly in an em- emergency situation. Well, and you mentioned lesser housing, mm-hmm. I think, Absolutely. because as you, you're yep. looking for landlords that are less and less interested in your background right. or your conviction. You said they or evictions stay on your record? Yeah, for- no, somebody described it as it's like having a, a criminal conviction on your record. Oh, um, people, okay. They, that that strong. Yeah, okay. no. Landlords can absolutely just say, "I'm not renting to 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 anyone who's had an eviction," um, and so and that's legal. That's they legal. Can say that? Yeah, they yeah. can say that because they're they're any, trying to any screen. Any landlord can say okay. Any landlord can right. say that, and and I mean, you know, you could you could potentially make some sort of a fair housing case about it, but it would be really hard um, unless you sort of said disparate impact. You know, the, the sort of impact of evictions falls most heavily on African Americans. Therefore, there is a fair housing case to be made. But is that true that it falls more heavily on African Americans? Yeah. So we found in our research that uh, the biggest predictor of um, uh, neighborhood uh, eviction rate is race. Really? So um, so as more than ad- class or more than du- double double the impact of any other indicator. Wow. Um, And and so and what we know and and so this kind of gets into this neighborhood piece is that we know that the same places in Richmond where we're seeing uh, significant eviction rates, the highest eviction rates in the city, right, north side, east end, south side, are areas that have experienced instability over the last hundred years of Richmond's history, right, whether it is um, through slum clearance and urban renewal and highway projects, redlining, um, uh, foreclosure, all these things have hit in the same communities and have continually de- destabilized the same populations in the same areas. And so really we're seeing this kind of history of dispossession in Richmond that, you know, how can you possibly engage politically? How can you possibly engage with your neighbors? How can you really take control over your own community if you're just trying to keep your home together? And we see that over over a period of decades. It's not just eviction. Eviction is just the latest form of this kind of dispossession of, of, of people. That's horrible. 
I'm trying to find this sort of uh, there's this mental place that I have where part of me thinks people should be able to make a living as a landlord right they have to they have to pay mortgages so they have to get rents but then I, I at least in the book some of the houses were in horrific condition and people were living in those conditions and still paying for it which I of course I think well there's got to be laws against that and I'm sure there are but then if you call those people to say hey we haven't had a working toilet in a month the landlord throws you out for because you were late on the rent last month because you had a problem with you know your hours got cut at work I, sorry as a personal aside um somebody who lives near me or in my same apartment complex got evicted um about a week ago and they had i guess they'd gone to court and gotten a court notice that they were evicted um and it took a couple of months for that to happen for that to work its way through the system so they kind of sort of knew it was coming but the problem was he works a full-time job but in order to make the rent he also works a part-time job they cut the hours at the part-time job Mm -hmm. and that's all it took they were running so close to the edge they have two small children they were running so close to the edge that they that it tipped them over and uh, you were talking earlier um Dr. Teresa, about the causes of, uh, like, running into those sort of a medical problem or you blow a tire on the car and, you know, tires are not cheap, and then, but you have to have the car to get to work. So if you lose your job, you don't have money, you can't pay the rent, but you also can't feed your kids, so what are you going to do? So it just seems like there ought to be something we can do about it. Is there anything that... <laughs> I mean, now I feel like I should walk in the streets and yell things and throw things. I mean, like, what should... What can we do? What can we do to to help? Or is there anything? I mean, obviously, you guys are doing something huge by studying and bringing together all that data and saying, look, there is a discernible problem here. We can point to specific problems. But like, for instance, people who are studying public administration, people who are studying urban planning, what can they do to to help? Yeah, I think the first thing maybe to point out and just be clear about is that we have a pretty good idea of a lot of different things that could make a big impact. And we have a range of policies and uh, solutions. So I I don't think the question, and I'll just, just to preface, I don't think that the question is, what can we do, right? The question is more, are we willing? How do we actually mobilize to put those solutions into place? And that's where, you know, Desmond, finishes the book Evicted talking about the solution of providing more kind of housing assistance to the lowest income uh, renters and to your question about, you know, land being a landlord as a business and the imperatives of running a business in terms of collecting rent. And the reality is that we need to understand that there are going to be a range where that kind of running uh, housing as a business is going to be successful, like a range of incomes for people where that's going to work. And then there's going to be a range of incomes and situations where that model is not going to work. And that's what we are, the consequences of what we're faced with here is where the rental business for low-income people is highly unstable because lower-income people's, for all the reasons that we've kind of outlined here, right? And so then the solutions, you know, are going to be creating really different kinds of um, housing solutions that that go beyond just kind of this this market 
if you will, the, the rental housing market. And so, for example, you know, one idea was expanding vouchers and the housing assistance that people receive. So most people who um, would qualify for housing assistance through um, uh, housing vouchers don't receive it. Or, and many of those who do get that kind of subsidy can't end up, uh, can't use it because they can't actually find a landlord willing to rent uh, to them. Is that what's commonly called Section 8? Yes. It is. Okay. Yeah, so it's the Section 8, the voucher that you take with you. So you can, you take your voucher and you go to a landlord and say, okay, um, I have a voucher. And the landlord says, okay, well, the rent is X number of dollars. And then they go to the housing authority, and the housing authority says, okay, great, um, you qualify, and, and so you're going to pay 30% of your income for, for rent, for whatever that is. So say that the rent is $1,200, so you would pay that $400 as the tenant. Um, and 30% of your income, by the way, is what's considered affordable. I, I was going to ask, yeah, is, so that that's, a, is that the sort of standard? That's sort of the standard. Mm-hmm. It's the, the okay. rule of thumb, if you will. Uh, and um, that standard um, says, okay, that's what's affordable to you. So you pay 30% of your income for rent. Beyond that, you're what's called rent burdened. Um, and um, and then um, the housing authority, through with the federal government funding, picks up the difference between what is 30% of your income for rent, so that $400 that the tenant could pay, and the... Um, uh, the, the 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 balance the market rate the market the rate of the, of the apartment so the landlord gets the market or rate right so the landlord gets the rent they, they want uh, up to a certain amount so you can't it, there are there are caps so you couldn't go into you know the fancy West End and and get uh, get like the finest apartment that there is um, but within that oh, okay. within that that what's called fair market rent you can get an apartment uh, and and they will pay the gap but. In Virginia and in many places across the country, landlords are allowed to um, refuse you based on you having a voucher. So that's called what's 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 called source of income discrimination, which is legal in the state of Virginia um, and in many other places. Um, so I mean, it really limits your options, right? Can I follow up a question yeah. on that? So that doesn't make any sense to me because they would be guaranteed eight hundred dollars from the government, right? Which I mean. It's possible the government is going to go under, but it's unlikely. <laughs> it's, it's less likely. I mean, it's not impossible, right. but it's right. unlikely. We seem to be chugging along pretty decently as a country, right? Right. So you're probably you're going to get at least eight hundred, that guaranteed, regardless right. of the other four. Like, if you have what I think of as not non-voucher tenants, right? Right. They may not be able to pay one month, and they can't pay anything. Right. And you'd at least have eight hundred. So why would you not take? So that's is, an, is it some sort of social discrimination? Like, uh, oh, you're not our kind of people, right? So there's is there's that... there's a mix, right? So so if you are say you're a landlord in one of those buildings that we talked about before, that um, maybe you're in a down market area, and um, the fair market rent for uh, or the, the the market rent you can get from anybody else might be a thousand dollars, but maybe the HUD standard is twelve hundred dollars. So you actually want voucher tenants. Because you can actually pay, uh-huh. have a higher rent standard okay. for voucher tenants, so you can actually benefit from that difference. Um, and so for them, they're looking at this at exactly how you are. They're saying, "Yep, I get standard amount of money. Uh, by and large, it pays mostly on time. I mean, there's some issues with a part of our eviction data is finding that there are some issues with um, timely payments from um, the housing authority." <clears throat> 
Um, oh, and that could throw you into eviction. Correct, because your rent's not being paid. Oh, right? okay. Even um, though you have no control over that. Correct, nice. correct. That's yeah. not fair. Yeah. No, okay. not at all. Not at all. So a lot of this is not fair, but yeah, okay. so the, yeah it's like a whole bucket of not fair. Right? Okay. That's just that's just what <laughs> we deal with housing. We deal with buckets of not fair. Um, but um, but so so in that case, yes. And then on the other side, um, it's there's there's sort of a some of that is the social discrimination, right? Vouchers have a reputation uh, of being. You know, it's sort of a those people kind of thing, right? Like people are are judge are are, are judgy, discriminatory, sometimes just racist, um, and then sometimes there's sort of this. Um, there's also a, a a bit of an administrative burden when you're first starting out with vouchers because you have to the the unit has to be inspected because HUD doesn't want to you know house people in units that are crummy, right? Which is good. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean I'm a big fan of that. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan. Big fan. Um, uh, but that kind of is like one more thing, right? And then, and then in cases where the housing authority is not functioning at its optimal, we'll say, uh, then you can also make there's the complaint that we aren't getting paid on time, and so um, it's not worth it. Um, but um, a lot more of it. I mean, more research has said if if you do outreach to landlords, um, it's uh, powerful. So if the, the, if the housing authority actually goes out, several studies that have come out recently that have talked about the power of landlord outreach to really get them into um, uh, taking vouchers. Uh, but it's definitely an issue here in the city, um, and and so people are are you know the vouchers people want them to be this sort of deconcentration of poverty you can go anywhere it's the power of the market uh, but that's not what's happening and in fact our vouchers are very concentrated uh, in the east end the north side and the south side ah there okay. there really is no concentration in the west end I'll go ahead and just just say that right now okay um, it's not like we can see this big pocket of vouchers anywhere west of Monroe Park oh interesting not even the near west like all of that is Okay. And then that's because landlords are generally making the choice not to accept them. Or the rents so, are too high. So, oh. So there's well, like yeah. those two like things. If that's true. If the rent was 50 now you've got to pay mm-hmm. $500 that you're starting to get. I mean, that's right. that's right. So a lot me, more money. Right. The more that goes up, the more the tenant is responsible for. Right. Even if they would accept the voucher, you're now looking at somebody who probably is making minimum wage trying to cover... Correct. You know, and there's in a three thousand dollar apartment, a thousand dollars a month would might as well be living right. without a voucher. Well, the voucher you know, is like, always tied to the income of the tenant, right? Um, so it's thirty percent. I see. The tenant pays thirty percent oh, of their income. Oh, it's not thirty percent yeah. of the rent. No, no, no. sorry, thirty oh, percent of their see. income. Yeah, sorry. Yeah. Oh, I, I see. Okay, but the, but the difference is for those areas that do command a higher than average, like if you imagine a regional median rent or a city median rent. You know, there are areas like the West End where it's higher than the median rent. Yeah. Right. They're, I'm sorry. And their limit is 1200 That rent is 1900 There's no way to make correct. that. Oh, I see. Correct. I'm sorry. I was. No, that's okay. Slow no, to, it's slow it's to complex. Follow. It's complex. Slow to follow. But, okay, so let's just build like a zillion apartments. That'll fix it, right? Uh, interesting, <laughs> interesting question, right? There's always, it, it sounds logical, right? Supply right. and demand. We'll just build right. lots, we all, lots we all of learn apartments this in, and then that yeah, way. Yeah. yeah, we all learn this in oh, economics. The rents will all drop and everybody right. will be happy. Yeah, I mean, there's sort of two things and then I'll let Ben take this one because he really enjoys going on this one. Um, <laughs> one, I, I've never met a developer who, who builds past his profit, right? I'm going to build more units, even though the market is flooded, I'm going to make no money. Ah. Right. No, nobody's going to do that. Well, that's true. Um, and then the second piece is that, like, there is just a, there, there's there's a there's another concept in economics. If y'all are going to take it, I recommend it uh, is called market failure. 
And market failure happens when the market literally just does not provide that particular service. And so that is um, units that are very uh, for very low-income tenants. The market cannot provide this. And so government has to step in and make them affordable. Okay. So if you're, end, if you're earning 50% of the median income, median income, chances are you're going to need some sort of government subsidy to make that affordable because otherwise you can't operate uh, on any, uh, any, any margin that makes sense. So, but the government could build lots and lots and lots of units, right? Right. So I, I think I think you know the answer of building more housing is correct, and yet that's at a level abstract level to to not be particularly useful. So we need to, of course, we need to build more housing, and we need to build and we need to make it legal to build more housing. So in a lot of parts of our city um, and region. It's not legal to build multifamily housing. Oh, only what's legal is single detached single family housing. Is okay. So and zoning is a is a huge issue then. Zoning is an important piece, um, and and what we often talk about is exclusionary zoning, right? Which, oh, we don't want their apartments here because that'll mean more people on our streets and more noise and more the, whatever. The reality is, you know, if you take you know one of the denser neighborhoods like the Fan, um, in in Richmond, for example, which already has two flats, four flats, uh, you know, these small apartment buildings, you cannot build that now, according to the zoning, right? And so just kind of restoring that basic mix of, yes, you have single family homes and you have two unit, four unit, maybe some six units as well, um, and a smattering of some larger apartment buildings. But but that mix, kind of allowing that mix in, in other neighborhoods, particularly in kind of the higher, uh, more, you know, higher rent, more expensive neighborhoods, uh, you know, prevent, you know, get ridding, uh, getting rid of the exclusionary aspect of zoning would be, would be beneficial. It's not going to, again, it's not going to reach uh, I mean, just by kind of undoing that exclusionary zoning, it's not going to mean that um, this this segment of low-income folks are going to be able to then then apartments are going to be built to that income range. There's that's not possible, and so that's where these other solutions come in, like vouchers. Um, and so expanding vouchers and you know making it so that landlords uh, cannot discriminate on the presence of a voucher, streamlining that administrative process, but also. Yes, uh, building you know public provision of housing, which comes in the forms of public housing, but also some kind of uh, subsidy for you know nonprofit, um, you know privately owned but but publicly subsidized affordable housing that can reach those lower incomes, which would never you know by the market failure, which would never be re- and has never historically, um, <laughs> the market has never historically housed the poorest decently, we could say. I mean, right. there have been housing solutions <laughs> right. over the past hundred years as the U.S. has urbanized that house the poorest, but we would not consider them a decent or... Those, right. those are actually just called tenements? Yeah. Yeah. We, uh, didn't, we, right. we, we didn't like that. Well, and and <laughs> some of well. the public housing that's been built, I mean, I've seen mm-hmm. pictures of some of the public housing in some of the larger cities, Chicago, and and so that are just terrible. I mean, they're, they're concrete bunker... Like, people wouldn't want to live. It's not very, it's not a kind place to live. I mean, part of what you're talking about, too, is integrating people into the community and the community integrating itself in a lot of ways so that people have a decent life. 
Right. right? Because what you want is a decent life. <laughs> you don't just want a place to sleep. I mean, if you want that, we could build giant dorms and we could give everybody a giant dorm room. I mean, a little dorm room. And but that's not how people want to live. Right. They want to live where there's green space and they want to live where there's parks and where their kids can walk safely on the sidewalk and stuff like that. Right. And, and I think what's, it's important to be clear, I mean, uh, you know, about public housing is that um, there was an implementation problem. Right. Um, that, you know, uh, right. So we all know what happens when, you know, you, there, there's OK, so let's 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 get something everyone's going to understand. We're going to Ikea. OK, <laughs> so there's a lot of different things at Ikea. Right. There's like the things that you look at and you're like, wow, if that gets wet, that is going to fall apart. Right. We all know we've seen it happen on the side of the street. You know, like we've, we've all owned it. We've all or, been there. Or your apartment when you put a wet beer down on right, your table right, and right. it warps. You know, like, it oh. warps almost immediately. And yeah, you exactly. think, oh, that was a mistake. How did I spill that picture of Whatever. water uh, <laughs> all over my, my coffee table? Now it's, it's, it's sawdust. OK, so we know, right? We know that that happens. But we also know in Ikea, like you can walk in and you're like, there's the things that you kind of squint. And you're like, wow, I don't think that's Ikea. Right. And that, and I promise folks, students who are listening, one day you'll get there. Um, I recently bought a thing that doesn't look like Ikea, but it belonged to Ikea. Ah. And I was so proud. Yeah. Um, but right. There's a there's a wide range of things. Right. And so there's a wide range of ways that you can do public housing. Right. Ah. And we built a lot of our public housing, particularly in the, the 60s and 70s, um, in that sort of, um, you know, sawdust way. Right. And in the, in the way that like we, we use poor materials. Um, the design we can talk about. I you know, that's 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 we don't seem to have have a problem with high rises on the Upper West Side or Upper East Side, wherever that is in New York, both oh. places. Right. We don't have problems with high rises in New York um, that have a doorman and actually are maintained. So, you know, the you know, right. Right. I mean, we talk about, like, oh, my God, it's the design. Well, but like that doesn't seem to be a problem when you're actually maintaining the buildings um, and you built them with good materials. So we, you know, we built public housing on the cheap because ultimately we were dragging people kicking and screaming to building public housing in the first place. And we thought, well, you know, that's cool, but you get what you pay for. And, and we haven't been paying for the, the maintenance of our public housing because the only funds that go into the public housing is for basic operating, is to keep the, keep the lights on and pay the gap between what it should cost to run the building and what the tenants can pay. That's all that we're putting in there. And the federal government hasn't put in significant capital, which is what you do to actually do renovations, large scale things like replacing the boiler, making sure that there's air conditioning, making sure that there's a good new roof. Right. All the issues we've had. Make sure the elevator works. Make sure the elevator works or the trash compactor works or whatever else is going on. And when you don't do that. Right. We all know what happens. Right. I didn't change the oil in my car for five years. I can't believe my engine died. <laughs> like this is not a surprise. Yeah. Right. We all know what happens. Dilapidated conditions are because you made them that way. Right. Right. Um, and because so, you didn't upkeep. Okay. Right. And so this lack of investment in, in, in public and affordable housing. Uh, this is this. We shouldn't be surprised. This is where we are. Yeah. Right. Okay. So so we can't I, you know saying that it's because it's public housing. I mean, you look at um, some of the, 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 the courts here in Richmond and they look like like from a just blind, you know, you look at it and you're like, put it, take it out of the public housing context. They've got front porches, they're fourplexes. They are, they are built with, there's huge old trees in some of these developments. It looks in some ways, many ways, like new urbanism, which is like the sort of, you know, thing that the planners really like. You get eyes on the street, <laughs> you get people outside. It's like, you know, it's a thing. And so I think that we have to kind of let go of some of these things about what the design is versus like, you didn't maintain it, right? Like right. you didn't replace your tires and now your rims are shot. Oh, huh. Yeah, and I'd also say like the other the other thing about the connection between public housing and eviction is um, is certainly like this supply of apartments, but it's also 
Richmond, I mean, I mean, there's a broader transformation of public housing over the past 20, 30 years in the United States, which has been a move away from, you know, the family uh, apartment uh, complexes, kind of, you know, the, the complexes of public housing, demolishing those and doing, um, you know, mixed income developments or other, you know, transformations of those large scale public housing projects that you were talking about. But I mean, part of the eviction project has been to document almost exactly during this period of this explosion in eviction. And a lot of people who were in public housing in cities like Chicago or Atlanta that then uh, move from public housing to e even a subsidized um, private uh, apartment, uh, private housing subsidized, we, we see the eviction rates kind of now we understand how pervasive eviction is kind of coinciding with this transformation of public housing in the United States. And Richmond, you know, still has its public housing uh, developments, but has been considering for a number of years and now has a new CEO of its public housing authority for, you know, they're developing a plan for transformation of some of its major housing complexes where they're in the early stages. And so this comes back around to eviction. We can't expect um, eviction to be, uh, eviction rates to go down or any meaningful, um, you know, reduction in eviction if we're simultaneously undermining public housing um, or, or turning those residents if those housing complexes are demolished um, to to the private market. That's that's not going to be um, a helpful, you know, transformation in terms of eviction. So those things are connected in that way as well. Well, and I, I so I went looking for an apartment because I was curious, right, I, um, about whether I could find something that was better than where I was living. Mm -hmm. I actually was trying to live on the bus line. That is impossible if you are below a certain income. And I was mm -hmm. noticing, uh, I am fortunate that I am middle income. So I w there were things I was able to afford. But I thought if I had to live in certain parts of the city that I could afford if I made less money, I would have a two to three hour bus ride to get to VCU to go to work. That's I think that's a really important observation. I mean, that's a huge problem, right? And I think that's exactly why we need to couple. So, you know, along the, if you're talking about the Pulse, the, excuse me, the Pulse line, the BRT right. line, there were a series of rezonings and actually up what we call upzoning, which is allowing denser, you know, more apartments essentially to be built around those Pulse stations, which is exactly what you want. But at the same time, there has to be, uh, protections. Uh, well, there has to be a commitment to affordable housing, protections for tenants, so that it's not just the higher income. Um, we're not just producing, you know, middle or higher income housing in those really accessible places, which is exactly what people who depend on the transit need. Exactly. I mean, I'm fortunate that I have a car that's in working condition, knockwood, um, <laughs> uh, you know, for now. And so I can live off the line and still get to work. Right. But if I needed the line, uh, you're now looking at more than 30% of my income right. to live in a lot of those places. So then we're back to your 50, 60% of your income is going to, and then it's one problem away from 
now I'm in trouble again, right? right? So it so there it seems to me like there is no. I know that earlier I was like, build more apartments, that'll solve everything. There, It's all, I see that it's all pull a string here mm-hmm. and it goes, it bunches up on the other side of the sweater, right? Because right. somehow swings, <laughs> yes. strings manage to do that in your yes. sweaters. So I, can we can we say, though, that it would be, I think, tell me what's wrong with this idea <laughs> that that maybe what we <laughs> should say is you can't be a landlord and not accept the voucher. Well, that that's definitely what uh, group, I mean. Shouldn't that, that just be right? And that's definitely they've they've had legislation at the state level uh, several several times to try to try to do that, and it's failed every time um, because this, of powerful real estate moguls, right? Well, just powerful people who don't you know they, they, they don't want to be told what to do, right? That's part of it is that they don't mm-hmm. want to be told what to do and who they have to accept, and it puts puts boundaries for them. Uh, but it's definitely something that a local organization that's that works statewide, Housing Opportunities Made Equal, our home. They have been advocating for this for a very long time, uh, along with adding LGBTQ um, to the fair housing in Virginia so that you can't be discriminate. You can't discriminate in housing based on your um, gender identity or sexual orientation. Wait, you can currently? You can. Absolutely. Yes, you absolutely can. Okay, so I shouldn't have gotten out of bed this morning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, like I said, we are here to depress you. Uh, well, I mean, take it our sounds like, though, that there are ways we can work towards solutions, right? If we can at least get... I, I don't know. Maybe you can't make every landlord do that, but maybe you can have some sort of threshold where if your apartments are, I don't know, in certain parts of the na- in certain parts of the city or along the bus lines or whatever, then you have to accept a certain number of vouchers. Maybe not all of them, but maybe you have to say I, uh, 10% of my housing has to be available to people who, who have a legitimate source of paying, of paying the rent. Uh, and that's that's sort of what we um, call uh, inclusionary zoning, ah. uh, which says, you know, if you're going to develop a building in, in in the city of Richmond, right, for example, which it's illegal in Virginia. So you, you, this is not actually law here, uh, but it is law in some of our neighboring jurisdictions and Arlington as well, I believe, has an inclusionary zoning law. But it says, OK, you are you want to build here. OK, great. Um, we will give you some more density so you can add some more apartments to the, the building, maybe another floor. Uh, but in exchange, a percentage of your of your units have to be affordable, uh, and they set affordability levels. Um, and this is also something that advocates in Richmond have been um, really pushing, trying to push as well with um, limited success, um, because again, it's yeah, the state has to enable because it's a Dillon rule state. More education, I know, all the time. It's a Dillon rule state, which means that the everything the jurisdictions want to do has to be enabled by the state government. So you have to be enabled to get an inclusionary zoning law. Okay, so first thing we have to do is get rid of the Dillon rule. Well, right. <laughs> yes, that would just. I, I, that's like one of those like you is know. I, I have three if wishes. I, I have if three I wishes say in it Virginia. To, a, to an urban planner, they're going to go. <laughs> is no, that, no, no, no. We're all like yes. No, no. I mean the Dillon rule. If I say yeah. those words, yeah. they yeah, spit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're all sort of they like they spit and they hiss. Yeah, like, exactly. No, we're all like no. you know putting up the crosses and. Uh, we're, or we're or garlic, a, city, a city council member. Say it to a city council member. Yeah, okay. so yeah, they, they, they really hate it, right? Because there's, there's there's some that limits really what they can do. Stymies, okay. Yeah, and so, um, so yeah. So the so, community could want it. Right. But the general legislature could say, Correct. we don't want it, and that's all that matters. Exactly. And that's, that's not okay. Yeah, and that's. Oh, I need to be governor. I've yeah, got absolutely. some things to change. Absolutely. Well, that's, and that's, that's what's <laughs> happened, you know, so the. Um, Getting LGBTQ on the fair housing has been, uh, the fair housing law in Virginia has been um, 
part of the legislative agenda for for advocates for about seven or eight years, and it's it's come up um, multiple times all, all of those years, and it's increasingly getting more support at the legislature. Uh, but it has never gotten passed in both houses. This year it got passed, I think, in one side but not the other. I'm blanking on which side that is. Uh, but it, it'll, it'll cross over and then get killed. Uh, and so and that's happened the past two years. And so I think you know more people understand that you can be legally discriminated against uh, based on your gender expression and your uh, sexual orientation. Um, that, that's, to me, that's a problem. Uh, but I think more people understand that and understand that we can change it um, by calling our representatives. Um, that, I think, is, is a big piece of, of, of things. Yeah, but next time that comes up for a vote, make your voice heard. Because, yeah. you know, and the thing is, it's weird to me because money is money. Right. Who cares who's paying them? Like, I, well, I, th- I think the we- landlord shouldn't give a flying flip what your <laughs> what your sexual orientation or, or or your gender representation or anything else that shouldn't matter. Right. Well, I think I think what your you know, your money is your money. Exactly. I think what you're hitting at though is that while we have this rational model right from economics about money's money right what 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 you're talking about is power and tenant landlord relationship is a power relationship. Those, the, the tenant and the landlord are are in in conflict. Um, I mean, not always, but but it's also about power. And so landlords want to be able to exert control over what they own. Um, and the question is, what are the limits to that? And are there limits that we can place or not place, and and what are we willing to accept the consequences of not putting limits on that, circumscribing the power in that relationship, right? Because right now we have, we don't have the limits that we're talking about in terms of these kinds of protections, and right. we have we see the discrimination and we see the effects of how the market works. Well, and to bring it back to the book, um, right. the if you fall behind in the rent you lose any sense of power that you had as a person who pays the rent. Like, I've been very fortunate to be able to pay my rent monthly on time, right? So when I call over to the office and I say, hey, the sink's doing making weird noises, they send somebody to fix Uh it because I have a certain amount of power in that relationship in that I can say, if I have to call a plumber because I'm even on the rent, I'm going to have to dispute paying you the full rent, right? Because I'm going to have to pay the plumber. And that is enough. That discussion is enough for them to say, no, 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 we'll send somebody over and they come over and they fix it. But the instant you fall behind, you lose any sense of power in that relationship because now you owe And now there's sort of an embarrassment factor. But there's also they'll say, well, I'll fix that when you when you pay the rent. Is that legal for them to do that? Can they say that? Or is it just one of those? It's not legal, but to fight it is worse than leaving it alone. I think if if you're I mean the problem if if you're behind on rent if if you know you haven't paid that rent then really it's kind of like you're out of luck on pretty much yeah. every front. Um, I mean that's the reality. Now and, and so that yes, so that's legal. Um, but there's another question which is you know um, if if things aren't being fixed and let's say you ended up paying for that plumber, right? Because the landlord wouldn't and 
you were having flooding or you couldn't take a shower or whatever, and you ended up fronting that bill, um, then there actually right now, at least in Virginia, there's no legal mechanism um, to withhold what you might withhold that rent, right? Oh, without Say, going to court. Um, without going to court. Oh, okay. um, and, and so you And so anytime that you withhold that rent, um, that actually turns towards the landlord's favor in in that legal. So process. it's all in the landlord's favor. Yeah. So if yeah yeah if if you if you have like say your toilet hasn't been working however long and you call the plumber and you say okay well now my my rent is twelve hundred dollars it cost me three hundred dollars to get the plumber out here and fix this I'm only paying you nine hundred dollars well that just triggered that means that you just didn't pay your rent unless you went to the court mm-hmm. and went through a process to put it in escrow. Wow. So, and that we see that we see. That, I mean, the non-payment of rent, it's it covers a whole host of things, right? You can say, well, you didn't provide heat for me. I'm not right. paying my rent until you provide heat because it is required in the state of Virginia to provide heat. Thank God. But oh, is it? Yeah, it is required. Okay. There's there's a few basic things that are yeah. Yeah. Can, can you name them? Uh, I mean, generally, it's like we t- we talk about like a warranty of ha- habitability. Okay. Uh, the legal term, which means livable conditions, uh, which which has come to mean things like hot water, you know, um, heat. At least between like, you know, November and March. Right. Um, so there's a, just a certain okay. set of things that you uh, that come now. The when stairs you, can't have holes in them, things like that. I mean, like you can't. You yeah, have to be able to, be, to walk to be across the room. safe to live in. Okay. Right. Yeah. Sorry. Anyway, no, you were no, saying no, no, no. so. That's... So you have to go to a court in order to right. be able to. And so, so you... we see people who are actually getting evicted because they withheld rent mm-hmm. because they um, had to pay for something. Right. Like and that. so, but but what the you know when when they go up in front of the judge, that's not a legal defense. Yeah, that's right. Oh. So you can't say, well, but they didn't provide me heat. Well, but you that meant you had to go and document it at the court. And who you know, and you talk about your neighbor who had a full time job and another part time job. When's he going to go up to the, up and say, hey, my oh, landlord didn't provide heat? Never. He right. He, I think he slept 20 minutes in his car each night. I mean, you know, he was yeah. He was really struggling to cover right. all of their all of their bills. There's no way he could have Right. And it has to be during frankly, the middle of the day. I'm not I'm not trying to cast aspersions because I would not know how to do that either. Right. Like you also have to know the system. You have to understand that you right. have to go to a court and you have to get that Correct. that judgment. And if you're not a person, if you're a person who either your experiences with court have all been negative, right? Right. And and um, I mean, I've been to traffic court once and it was not a happy thing. <laughs> so my experiences have been relatively negative. But you also, if you're afraid of the system because the system has generally not been good to you, right. that would be really hard to. Right. to know what you needed to do in order to do that legally. Right. And and just, just to put another layer, speaking of, you know, systems, like you put another layer of that of people who are undocumented or who are in, ha, have, uh, you know, unclear immigration status. What kind of power do they have? None. Right. Right. Because what are you going to do? You're going to call, call somebody on your landlord? You might get immigration called on you. You might, you have a lot of risk to being thrown out of a unit. Um, to being, you know, un- housing unstable. So add, it's that sort of, we find that that's, that, that is another uh, layer to this power dynamic that Ben talked about. Wow. Yeah, so again, buckets full of A depression, yeah, just, okay. Sorry, um, but we'll, we'll come up no. with something about puppies and unicorns later. <laughs> what, we'll give everyone in public housing a unicorn. <laughs> um, that would be marvelous. 
it seems like to me though that there what there are a lot of fronts that we can attack this on. Yep. So if you're interested in doing something, there's probably something in the subject area you're studying, students, or yes. community members, the things you're passionate about. There's probably something that you can do that will pull one of those strings that will help in the long run, right? It's not just housing. It's also better paying jobs, and it's also better access to um, to public transportation, mm-hmm. to cheap public transportation. I mean, if you, mm-hmm. you know, when you start adding up bus tickets, that can get that can get kind of steep in some cities and yeah. some cities riding the train is impossible. It's so expensive. Yeah. So, I mean, there's all kinds of strings that people can pull and work on. Um, is it, would you mind if I put the uh, link to the eviction oh, lab? Mm-hmm. Okay. On the, on this so that people can get great. more information and so they can contact you if there's yeah. something that they want to, sure, they want to try to do. Um, if they're feeling like me and they're feeling sort of impotent rage and they want to do something <laughs> about it. Well, I will, um, I will say the two easiest things you can do uh, and, and just in general, you should do these things is register to vote and uh, call your local, state, and federal representatives um, and, and ask why they're not doing anything um, because that's really key and, 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 and really sort of demanding action. That's the easiest thing, believe it or not, that you can do. And, and then you can start to look at all the other things you can do within your career field, which you know VCU's got a lot of really great community engagement that's dealing with social determinants of health and all these other really great pieces. So um, then you can start engaging on campus. Thank you, because we do we do talk. Augie and I do talk a lot about voting and how you need to get out and vote. We also, um, just as a side note, for the listeners, geek out on going to council meetings. Yes, you can go to city council meetings, and because so few people go, you probably will get to talk. Oh, absolutely! Um, and so you can stand up and say, "We need more. You know, we need better housing at all income levels. Right. We need better public transportation. We need bike routes on." I can't remember what Brook Road, right? That's that yep. was one yes. of the big right. fights here lately right. is to having a bike lane. Um, and that seems to be I mean, they respond. They respond because you're there and it's really hard to ignore you when you look them in the eye and you say, this is what I want and I'm a voter. Um, and so for our students, new students, especially who are listening to this, you can register to vote here on campus. It's not hard to do. If you get confused, you can email me and I will help you out figuring that out. Thank you both so much for coming today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. I appreciate you. you being available invite. to us to talk about this. And um, and now I'm going to go lay down and put a cold compress on my head, and then I'm going to go yell at people. <laughs> <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Thanks. You've been listening to Civil Discourse, brought to you by VCU Libraries. Opinions expressed are solely the speaker's own and do not reflect the views or opinions of VCU or VCU libraries. Special thanks to the Workshop for Technical Assistance. Music by Isaac Hobson. Find more information at guides.library.vcu.edu discourse. As always, no documents were harmed in the making of this podcast.